Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come now to your word, coming with expectant hearts to hear you speak to us, your people. Lord, we know we are sheep that quickly go astray, and we ask that you would set us again on the narrow path that leads to life. Sanctify us now in the truth. Your word is truth. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. you please open your Bibles. We're back in Zechariah again this morning, now in chapter 9. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 8. You can find this in the Pew Bibles on, pages, on page 796. So Zechariah chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. Hear now, this is the holy, infallible word of God. The oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, and Damascus is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel, and on Hamath also, which borders on it. Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise, Tyre has built herself a rampart, and heaped up silver like dust, and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions, and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid, Gaza too, and shall writhe in anguish, Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded." The king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro, no oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. Fear not. Do not be afraid. As you have most likely heard before, this is the most often repeated command in all of Scripture. Do not fear. We even saw it twice last week in chapter 8. But in order to not fear... You must feel safe. You must be secure. But where do you turn for that security? If you have enemies who would harm you, you need a defender, a protector, one who is stronger than all your enemies so that no harm will come to you. Then you truly have nothing to fear. Then you can say with the psalmist, in peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, Make me dwell in safety, Psalm 4.8. The Lord is your protector, and he is the Lord Almighty, more powerful than all. But in Zechariah's day, God's people were not only ruled over by the ruthless Persian Empire, they were surrounded by enemies on every side. They had no peace, they had no security. But in this passage before us this morning, the Lord shows himself to be 
the divine warrior who goes on a military campaign to defeat those who are both his enemies and the enemies of his people. And yet, in the midst of this, he also shows himself to be merciful, even to the point of saving some of his wicked enemies. Then at the end of his campaign, he settles down to guard his people in Jerusalem. As we reflect on this passage, you will see that the Lord is your shield and defender. You can take refuge in him, not only from physical threats, but from those things that threaten your emotional and spiritual well-being also. So fear not, because the Lord is a warrior, and the Lord is mighty to save you. So in the first six verses of our passage, we'll see first, our Lord is the warrior, and the warrior God is on the march. Verse 1 begins with the words, the oracle of the word of the Lord. And if you've been paying attention to our study of Zechariah so far, and perhaps we're going back a ways, you might notice this is different from what we've seen so far. This is not Zechariah seeing a vision as we saw in the eight night visions. And it's not the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, followed by the repeated, thus says the Lord, as we saw in the first six verses of the book, and as we saw in chapter 7 and 8, which we just looked at the last two weeks. And this, this wording here, the oracle of the Lord, it means we're entering the second half of the book of Zechariah. Chapters 9 to 14, it's composed of two of these oracles. And that word oracle, it's just another fancy word for a prophecy from the Lord. And there's a shift in style in these chapters, which may indicate that Zechariah wrote them a little later in his life. Or perhaps the Lord simply gave these revelations to, to Zechariah and he had them recorded in a different genre. But while there is a difference in the style, there are many shared themes between the two halves of the book of Zechariah. Now this oracle, which runs from chapter 9 to 11, begins with judgment on the enemies of God's people. But it goes on then to focus on the restoration of the remnant of God's people under a new Davidic king, which will come with many blessings, not only for God's covenant people, but also for the nations as well. On the verses we're looking at this morning, we see God depicted as a warrior on campaign, moving from north to south, from Syria to Phoenicia to Philistia. Now, this is not new imagery in Scripture, as the Lord is depicted as a warrior all the way back in Exodus as his people are being delivered out of Egypt. When they are afraid of Pharaoh's army, afraid of Pharaoh's army as they march behind them, afraid that they will overtake them, what does Moses tell them? He says, do not fear. You know, that common command, do not fear. Stand firm, you will see the Lord's salvation. And then he says, the Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. Exodus 14, 14. And then after Pharaoh's army is drowned in the Red Sea, they praise him with a song and they sing, The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Exodus 15, 3. We see the same theme in Psalm 24, 8. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Now here we will see the Lord's might and power used to defend his people 
and bring judgment on the ungodly nations all around them. And the first stop in his march, in his campaign against these nations around them is in Syria. So the passage opens, the oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, and Damascus is its resting place. This verse describes God's judgment coming to rest upon the northern nation of Syria, and the capital of Syria is Damascus. Then in verse 2, we see Hamath, the nation just below it to the south, is included. And when we think of ancient Israel, Syria, this, it's, it's the northern neighbor, and we think of that just north of, of Israel. It's, it's the northern neighbor. It's only at the very climax of Israel's strength, during the united kingdom of David and Solomon. It's only then that they were able to conquer Hamath and even put a garrison as far as Damascus. But if you recall God's promise to Abraham, even this territory in Hamath and Syria, these two were promised to Abraham's descendants. On that day, the Lord made a covenant to Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Genesis 15, 18. And so the Lord is bringing judgment on these people who are technically within the ideal boundaries of his holy land. Now, there's no explicit description here of what sort of judgment the Lord is going to carry out. It simply says his word is resting against them. And then verse 1b here, it's difficult to translate, but I think the, the translation in the footnote in the ESV is preferable. And this is actually followed by almost all other English translations besides the ESV. The ESV puts it in the footnote. It reads, For the eye of mankind, especially of all the tribes of Israel, is toward the Lord. This actually echoes a previous prophecy of Isaiah against Damascus, where after the Lord strikes Damascus, the response is to repent and look to the Lord. It says, Isaiah 17, 7, In that day man will look to his maker, and his eyes will look on the Holy One of Israel. And so as the Lord, the divine warrior, is on the move, all eyes are on him. And depending on if he is for you or against you, whether you are on his side or not, You will either be safe and secure or trembling with fear. You are either looking to the Lord because you are trusting him and he is guarding and protecting you. Or you are looking at the Lord because you are watching out to see if he is coming for you. Next we come to the destruction of Tyre and Sidon, verses 2b through 4. These two cities are often called Phoenicia. That's the people that live in Tyre and Sidon. These are cities on the coast, just south of Syria and Hamath, still slightly north of Israel. They are described first as wise in verse 2, although here it might be better to translate that crafty. That's the better word for wisdom that is used for ungodly means, the wisdom of the serpent. We see in verse 3 that through her wisdom, Tyre has built up her defenses, a strong rampart, a fortress. In fact, she was an island city, just a half mile offshore, with double walls 150 feet high. With such defenses, she seemed impregnable. And her overflowing riches are described here by comparing silver, her silver to dust, her fine gold to the mud of the streets. 
In other words, in this city, silver and gold are so common, they're more common than dirt. You may recall that the king of Tyre had befriended King David and had assisted King Solomon in building the Lord's house. But now the Lord decrees his judgment on this proud city. And it accords with several earlier prophecies of judgment that had been pronounced upon Tyre. Verse 4, But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. With these details, the detail of this coming judgment, we can now ask the question of fulfillment. When was this prophecy fulfilled? Now, some interpreters don't believe, they, they believe we shouldn't try to line up the details of, of this Zechariah 9 with a particular military campaign in history. But there is one particular cataclysmic destruction of Tyre that lines up quite well with this description. And that is the siege of Tyre by Alexander the Great of Macedonia in 332 BC. Before this, Tyre had never fallen to an invading army. Because of its great fortifications, it was able to hold out against an Assyrian siege for five years. It withstood a 13-year siege at the hands of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. This prophecy was finally fulfilled when it fell to the hands of Alexander the Great. He built a causeway from the mainland all the way out half a mile to the island city, and was able in this way to mount a direct attack with his army. But even this was not enough. His forces had to be supplemented by a navy of over 200 war galleys. After the previous lengthy failures, it took Alexander only seven months to take the city. Still, Alexander was appalled by the costliness of taking the city and the number of troops he lost. And though before this he had often been relatively generous for a conquering general, this time he took out his anger, his rage on the city. In the end, the city was not only stripped of its possessions, as it says here, but of its people, with Alexander murdering many and selling the remaining population into slavery, reducing the city to rubble. After This great judgment on Tyre, we then come to next the judgment on the Philistines. The divine warrior continues traveling south along the Mediterranean Sea to the coastal plain just west of Judah. Verse 5 Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid, Gaza too, and shall writhe in anguish, Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod. And I will cut off the pride of Philistia. Four of the five Philistine cities are mentioned here, all but Gath, which perhaps had already been destroyed at this time. They see the destruction of Tyre, and it is a warning of their own coming judgment. Ashkelon responds with fear. Gaza with anguish, Ekron with confounded hopes, and perhaps you can understand when you hear the destruction of Tyre. Then we see the specific judgments of these cities described. Gaza will lose its king. Ashkelon will lose its people, completely depopulated. Ashdod 
will now have a mixed people, a people of mixed races or heritages. And this was often the result of ancient conquest, when one population would be mostly removed and another population moved in to replace it. This is exactly what produced the Samaritans. When the northern tribes were removed from the land, taken out into exile, and others were brought in and mixed with the few people who remained. Although the Samaritans had embraced a form of Judaism with some variations of doctrines, the Jews always considered them a mixed and impure people, not true Jews, either racially racially or doctrinally. Then the last phrase in verse, uh, verse 6, it's a summary, but it may also foreshadow what comes in the next verse. I will cut off the pride of Philistia. They're humbled through these judgments. But humility may also be the first step towards repentance. But before we get there, let's consider the historical fulfillment. After Alexander's siege of Tyre, he proceeded south and laid siege to Gaza. This is a much shorter siege, lasting only about a month before the city was taken. Its ruler slaughtered, and the people either slain or sold into slavery. Now, these were real physical judgments that were first prophesied and then carried out in history. But what are the lessons for God's people? First, there is always a reminder that God's word is true. When he declares a coming judgment, he will fulfill it. Unless, of course, there is repentance. And this was not the first time that there had been oracles of coming judgment against these particular places. I listed several previous prophecies against Damascus, Tyre, and these Philistine cities in your outline. There's always the possibility that there will be repentance. And the judgments may be prevented, just like we see in the well-known case of Jonah and Nineveh. Second, physical judgment in this world is only a picture and a symbol of the greater judgment to come, the judgment of God himself. When the Bible says that the wages of sin is death, it is speaking not only of physical death, but of eternal death spiritual death, of suffering the wrath of God in eternal damnation. And any temporal judgment can only be a small foretaste of the fullness of the wrath of God to be suffered in the eternal fires of hell. And I'll be honest, I hesitated for a moment to include the idea that Alexander the Great fulfilled these prophecies, especially when I read of how brutal he was toward the populations of Tyre and Gath, and I I didn't include all the details this morning in the sermon. He was brutal. But he wasn't more brutal than the Babylonians were when they brought their destruction on Jerusalem, and that also was God's judgment. And both of these judgments, these brutalities, are a mere shadow compared to the imagery that Jesus himself uses to describe the final judgment upon those who do not repent of their sins. When he says they will be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, Mark 9, 47 through 48. And so even as these are judgments on the ungodly, on God's enemies, and they also serve here to protect his people. 
They stand as a warning to us to call us to repent lest we too perish in our sins. While this judgment is great, next we see that there is salvation in the midst of judgment. Verse 6 concludes with the words, And I will cut off the pride of Philistia, as we've already seen. And if that were the end of the passage, it might mean their utter humiliation through judgment. But as this is followed by verse 7, it appears to be a humbling that prepares a person to be exalted by the Lord. And that's what we begin to see in verse 7. First we read, I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. And notice here, the Lord is saying what he himself will do. This is in the first person. As you may recall, the eating of blood is forbidden, not just according to the kosher laws of the Mosaic Covenant, but going back to God's covenant with Noah and with all creation following the flood. So first the Lord is saying he will purify the Philistines from their practice of eating meat with its lifeblood still in it. And secondly, he will remove abominations from their teeth. That is to say, their meat sacrificed to their abominable idols. By taking these practices away, the Lord is sanctifying these people. He is, in other words, bringing them to himself. And so he goes on to say, it too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah and Ekron like the Jebusites. A remnant speaks of what, is, what remains after passing through God's judgment. This is a term that's usually applied to God's people after they had gone through exile in Babylon. And now only a remnant had returned to the promised land. But now a remnant of the Philistines belong to the Lord as well. They are included among God's people. They are like a clan in Judah. This is amazing stuff. They're compared to the Jebusites who were the original inhabitants of Jerusalem. When King David conquered that city, he didn't wipe out the entire population, but many were incorporated into the people adopted, many adopted the religion of Israel. We have one example of this around the Jebusite, from whom David would later buy his threshing floor, and that would be the location on which the temple was built. In some ways, I think these verses are like a story with a a big reveal, a big twist at the end that makes you go back and see the whole story differently once you know that twist ending. One well-known example of this is the movie The Sixth Sense, and I'm not going to tell you the whole story with all the details, but if you know the movie, you know what I'm talking about, how that twist ending, it, it changes the whole story. Now, it's true, the Lord had said to Abraham at the very beginning that all the families of the earth would be blessed through him. And then there are all these hints and all these prophecies that he's bringing in the nations. But then you look at this and you say, but the Philistines? Are you serious of all the nations to be welcomed in? This is like the first time you watch The Last Jedi and you find out That Darth Vader, and I think it's safe to give away this spoiler, Darth Vader is Luke's father? You can't believe it's true. When you think about the Philistines, Israel has many enemies in the Old Testament, but none 
like the Philistines, those against whom Saul and David had fought so many battles. And yet by God's amazing grace, they are welcomed in. By God's grace, enemies go from judgment to mercy. And if God can welcome even the Philistines, then he can welcome anyone. He can welcome the chief of sinners, a persecutor of the church like Paul. Saul goes to Paul. He can show how deep his mercy goes. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life? Romans 5.10 You too were God's enemy until he had mercy upon you, until Christ gave his life for you, until the Spirit worked in your heart to grant you the new birth and reconcile you to God. And all this by the grace of God who takes his enemies and makes them not only friends, but adopts them into his family. And so just as we saw how fearful are God's judgments, we also see here how marvelous is his grace. And then once he welcomes us in, we see how the Lord sees and how he guards his people. That's our third part this morning, verse 8. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them. For now I see with my own eyes. After securing the borders, the Lord encamps at his house, watching as a guard against any oppressor that might march to and fro, any oppressor that might come near to threaten them. This is a bit of an unusual description. Do you ever encamp at your own house? Usually this is a word that's used to describe an army that's on a march, not when you rest peacefully at your own house. The sense is not that the Lord is just going to sit down at home and put his feet up. He's not going to lay down and rest. He is still the divine warrior, and he remains alert. He is on guard against any threat to his people. This reminds us of Zechariah's third night vision, when the Lord promised to be a wall of fire surrounding Jerusalem to defend her. Then verse 8 concludes with an interesting phrase, for now I see with my own eyes. And that little word for, it's saying, this is giving the reason for why the Lord is doing these things. Because I have seen with my own eyes. And you might be puzzled at first, why is the Lord saying this? Because I have seen, what has he seen? He's saying, because I have seen what my people have suffered. I have seen their vulnerability to their enemies. I have seen their need for my protection. And really this seeing, it's an echo of a parallel passage back in Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. Perhaps you recall when we studied this way back, when we were looking at the book of Exodus, then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt And I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, 
a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the peoples of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Here it speaks of the oppression and their taskmasters, and that word in those verses is the same Hebrew word here in Zechariah that speaks of defending them against their oppressors. No oppressor shall again march over them. And so it's one more piece of evidence that the Lord here is intentionally echoing Exodus chapter 3. So God is keeping his covenant promise because he has seen the affliction of his people with his own eyes, just like he had many generations before in Egypt. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears toward their cry, Psalm 34, 15. And having seen his people, having heard their cries, he will guard, protect, and deliver them. And he continues to be the shield and defender of his people today. When the, thorn, when the storms of this life threaten you, he is the only one you can trust, you can turn to, and be absolutely certain you can trust. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we can trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. Psalm 27 and 8. So where can you go for safety and security in this world? Go to the Lord, who encamps around his people to guard them. As David sang, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, Psalm 18.2. Now in Zechariah's day, when the Lord spoke of his presence in his temple, guarding his people, that was all in one central location. It was in Jerusalem. And so he summoned his people from far off to draw near to him in Jerusalem, to come back to be under his protection. But as you know today, the Lord's temple is made up of living stones. You are each members of his temple, with God himself, the Holy Spirit, dwelling within you. And that means that the Lord is with you wherever you go, to watch over you, to guard and protect you. Now, on one hand, that means, or we, we know, we recognize, that doesn't mean Everything will be peaches and roses from here on out. The Lord has, in fact, promised that there will be trials. There will be persecutions for his pilgrim people, even as we are following in the footsteps of a suffering Savior. And yet, we also take great comfort from the fact that the almighty divine warrior is always with us to guard us and defend us. And that means that nothing can befall us except that which he permits for our good and for his glory. And so let us run with endurance the race that is set before us with our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Let us not fear anything in this world that threatens us for if God is for us, who can be against us? 
And we know that there is nothing in all creation that can separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do give you thanks and praise because you are a mighty warrior. And if we were still in our sin, we could only look upon you and tremble with fear. But because of the grace and mercy you have shown us in your son Jesus Christ and in the gospel, we trust in you and now all our fears are put to rest. Even though we were once your enemies, you have made us into family. And you have become our shield and defender, our ever-present guardian. Help us to know that because you are always with us, we can truly rest. We rest in you, our mighty rock, our refuge and stronghold. And so we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.